offer the sacrifices of the righteous. That would be have fellowship with God. Come and sit at God's feet. Enjoy. Here, listen to what God has to say. Just trust Him. Bibles tonight, Psalm 3, as we continue on Sunday nights through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And tonight we come to um, the second book in the books of wisdom and poetry. There's a, a series of them here in your Old Testament. They begin with the book of Job. They continue through the Song of Solomon. And they're unique for a couple of reasons. The, the teaching is oftentimes in Hebrew poetry which isn't the rhyming kind of stuff that you're used to in English, but more the contrast and the similar, you know, the comparisons that the Lord makes or the repetition. It's a good way to teach. You know, Hebrew poetry teaches you through repetition. And that's not just true in the Bible. I mean, if you read Homer, you know, you're going to get the same thing because that's just the style. But at the same time, these books, for the most part, do not move or advance the history of the nation of Israel forward. The historical books, actually, we have finished. But um, they do promote and develop a present tense relationship with God. So from Job all the way through the Song of Solomon, the focus is the past work of God, the future promises of God, but all to develop your present walk with God. And that's always where, you know, these, these psalms want to take you. In Hebrew, the word for psalms is sefir telechim, which just literally means the book of worship or praises. And it is indeed a hymn book intended to be sung, most of them with musical instruments, and a lot of them are delineated as such. But they are wonderful insights, oftentimes into somebody's prayer life. You know, I always like the prayers in the Bible because you get to listen when people are just talking to God and they don't think no one else is listening. And then the Lord writes them down. So it helps you to develop your own prayer relationship with God. Hey, look at how you can pray. And a lot of these psalms tend to be just that. We mentioned to you, and if you weren't here last week, we would encourage you to get the CD or just check it out at the bookstore so you can get the whole introduction of the Psalms. But we mentioned last week that nearly half of them were written by David, 70, I think, three. And there were some other fellows, you know, Moses wrote one, and there's a couple of uh, uh, other groups who have written several. Um, the study of Psalms does produce or, or, or present, I should say, a bit of a difficulty in teaching if you're, if you're teaching the Bible. Because for a while, anyway, the Psalms kind of changed topics from one to the next. And so you got like your mini-series, you know, every week, four or five different topics. When we are told what the Psalms are about, like we have tonight, it is much easier. Because then you can place the prayer and the worship in the context of the, you know, the chronology or of the narrative or of the history that it refers to. All of the Psalms that we're looking at tonight fall under the historical setting of 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17. So you can write it in the margin if you want, or you can go look at it later. But it, it is that time later on in David's life when he has had to pick up his family, pick up his friends, take the children, and run for their lives out of the palace of Jerusalem in the middle of the night because his son Absalom was leading a rebellion that he had kind of sneakily gathered together to overthrow his father. And he wanted to take his father's, you know, government from him. If you were with us when we went through the poet, uh, the, sorry, the historical books, David wasn't a very good father. 
He was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. But he brought a lot of problems to himself by marrying a lot of wives. And then you know the whole Bathsheba incident, which kind of put him in a position where he couldn't even correct his own kids. So he had a lot of homes. He had a lot of children with different women. He found himself suffering as a result of all of those things. One of his daughters, Tamar, was at one time raped by a half-brother named Amnon, and David didn't do anything about it. He, he couldn't speak up. He had, and, and had found himself in a similar kind of position. So Absalom hated his father for it. Why don't you do something? And there was silence for a long time before Absalom finally went, well, that's ridiculous. I'm killing this guy. And he went after Amnon, and, and, and it drove an even further rift before you know, he and his father. He kills Amnon, and then he runs for exile. Through a lot of people's interference, you know, they finally talk David in inviting his son Absalom back into the kingdom, but he never does really talk to him, and they don't really get along, and there's hatred. And David spends a year inside just hiding with his whole sin with Bathsheba. From the Psalms, you, you get the impression he was very sick, not only depressed, but ill over the thing, you know? And so he didn't come out in public. He didn't talk to the people. But Absalom was working the, <laughs> the streets, you know, hi, how you doing? You know, if it was me instead of my dad in charge, I'd help you, you know? And he was winning the young people over, and he was winning you know, many of the folks to his cause. And so perfectly ripe, you know, for this whole kind of problem. And David, though he had returned to walking with the Lord, found a lot of fruit of sin that broke his heart and left a lot of sorrow and, and misery in its wake. So by the time that Absalom carries out this threat or this plan, I should say, to overthrow his father, David's relationship with God is, is absolutely good again. He's faithfully seeking God. He's wanting to do the right thing before the Lord. You know, sin is sin, it leaves its wake. But at the same time, David, as he leaves town, leaves town because he doesn't want his son to kill the people in town or hurt the folks. He loved the people, and he said, I'll just leave. It'll be a bloodless coup. And he packed everyone up, and he heads across the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, down to the Jordan River, crosses it into a place called Mahanaim, and there with a fairly large contingency, just stops for the night, and wonders what's next. The contemporary wisdom was um, that Absalom was going to chase him down while he was in disarray and the people weren't organized and he was going to seek with, with all of his army to just slaughter and destroy and take over. Didn't happen by God's good grace and David was spared, but David didn't know that. And so they fled for a night. <clears throat> they ran, if you will, all night and at most of a day. And then they stopped. Psalm 3 was written the next morning after heading out. Psalm 4 was written the following night, and Psalm 5 then that following morning. So you basically get about two days worth of David's heart before God in the midst of this terrible overthrow. <clears throat> An older guy, you know, who knew grief, who had found God's forgiveness, was still suffering with God's consequence or, or with sin's consequences, but needed to know the certainty that God was in charge. And so that's where we find, if you will, David tonight, and if you need to go back and read, those would be the three chapters, 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17. Notice in chapter 3 that the psalm begins with the words, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. <clears throat> the superscription there, a psalm of David, there are different words for psalm in the psalms, and if you have a New King James, oftentimes you're, you'll find them at the bottom, kind of as a you know, a footnote. In, in the King James, they are usually still in the superscription. But this is the word mizmor, which is 
a, a word that literally means to prune or to cut off excess branches. So here's a psalm that is pruning, but at the same time, you know, you may make speeches that are long-winded, but when you're in trouble like David, you don't have time for that. You go right to the point. And so here's a quick song. Here's a quick hit, you know. This is not going to have 43 verses because he needs God's help now. And, and the word mizmor is an interesting one because it literally means, you know, to prune or to cut back. And it is a, um, it's a melody word as well, but, but the root of it means to cut. So this seemed to be sung in that kind of a short tempo. And notice also at the end of verse 2 and again at the end of verse 4 and again at the end of verse 8, it is the first time in the Psalms that you run into the word selah. You see it at the end there? Um, it's a significant word, but there's great debate as to what it means. There are a lot of musicians who believe this is kind of the crescendo mark where you know start booming it out right here. Or there are others that believe that it is a place of rest or a pause um, in a musical kind of an interlude, if you will. And then there are others who, who believe that the word itself means, uh, you know, what do you think so far? Have you thought about this? The word, by definition, means to exalt. It does seem like it is placed after significant statements that would require you to stop and think about them for some time. Uh, the booming them out is, I think, the minority view. But David puts them a lot after he makes these great statements of faith, and he says, think about that. You know, and it may very well be a, um, you know, a pause, if you will, in the music, but it seems to be more than that, even just in the, in the significance of it. Just think about this, you know, let this, you know, fill your thoughts. So David had run, he had run a long way. He had a lot of people with him. It was very shameful. He was old. It was, you know, can you imagine the king just packing up and leaving? And this is what he begins by writing that morning after. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me, and many are they who say to me, there is no help for him in God. David, in full flight, had a dreadful, I would think, 24 hours running with friends in tow and a future very much in doubt. He had gone to sleep that night, having set a guard to watch towards Gilead, which is where the armies would have come, if you read the historical rites. And David, in all of this, had slept very well according to the historical books. Joab, his general, looks at him in the morning and sees David sitting down writing a song. This is not a songwriting time. Maybe David saw his curious stare and said to him, hey, Joab, come here. Listen to this. What do you think? I think it's catchy. Songwriters, they're an interesting breed, isn't it? Absalom was winning the youth. David knew that. He had been all but, you know, in seclusion for a year with his sin. His boy was clever. He was, according to the Bible, a very charming personality. He could win you just with his grin. And then David was aware that the people weren't all with him. And so he writes here, the enemy seems to be growing. When he left town, you might remember, if you remember the story, there was an old guy named Shemai. He was from um, Saul's family. And when David was forced to leave, he was the one who stood up on the cliffs and began to yell down at David what a loser he was. Joab even said, let me kill him. <laughs> and David goes, no, who knows? Maybe the Lord sent him. You know, I am kind of a loser. Just let him alone. Leave him be. And Joab just had it. It was like, it was like a, a guy just mocking him, you know. And, and God wouldn't help him. And notice what he says here. 
There are many who say to me, you're, you're not going to get any help from God. You're, you're, you've been thrown out. You've been refused. And so David had probably had Shemai in mind, and, and I think David knew that it was a lie, and so he writes the word Selah. Imagine that. <laughs> God would just give up on me. I can't believe that that would be so. And as a falling, stumbling saint that had in many ways brought this upon himself, David was still sure that God would not uh, forsake him. He trusted the Lord, though he had caused much of the grief. And he assessed the situation honestly and correctly. He knew that it was so. So he writes in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Great man of faith, isn't it? The word, by the way, Jehovah in the Psalms, when they are all in capital, and that goes for the entire Old Testament, is a translation of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. And when they are all in capitals, it's the word for the becoming one. It's the word of, of covenant that God took as a name for himself. I will become all that you need. So you'll find the word Jehovah or Yahweh attached to something that God gives his people. When they need peace, he's Jehovah Shalom. When they need to be right with God, he's Jehovah to sit canoe, and you'll find these names attached, but always to that foundational attachment of Jehovah, the becoming one, the one that, that you know you need, and he can become all that you need. When there is just a capital L and a small O-R-D, it is a translation of the word Adonai, which is a word of position. He is the Lord, you're not. <laughs> it's like boss, you're not the boss, he is, you know, he's the Lord. So you can keep an eye on it, and when you see all the capitals, you'll know it's Jehovah or Yahweh. If it's a small O-R-D after a capital L, then it is the translation almost always of the word Adonai, the positional truth. So David says to the becoming Lord, you keep your word, you've kept your promise, you keep your covenant. And David's hope wasn't emotional, although I'm sure he was emotional at this time, but he was dependent upon the faithfulness of God. I'll be on the run, but God still rules. I'll be on the run, but God can still help me. And I think David all the time remembered how the Lord had come through. And boy, had the Lord come through for David. All of those years with Saul, seven years and a half on the run, seven and a half more years as most of the nation didn't want anything to do with him. And now years and years of God's faithfulness. So David remembered. And, and he remembered God's hand. Salah, he writes again, I know that God is going to protect me and he's going to lift me up. And when I cry, he's going to hear. I'm, I'm not out of touch with God, even though my life seems to be out of control. I'm not out of touch. Selah. <laughs> no kidding. Amen. Absolutely. And the next morning, he writes, I lay down and slept. And then I awoke for the Lord sustained me. And I will not be afraid of 10,000 people setting themselves against me all around. Arise, Jehovah, save me. And there the word God is Elohim, the plural. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone, broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessings are upon your people. So David lay down, woke up and said, ah, oh, the Lord got me through the night. No one had showed up to kill him. The troops hadn't arrived like he expected or anticipated. They hadn't come after him. And David writes, the Lord has helped me, so I'm not going to be afraid. I don't care if there's 10,000 of you. I got the Lord. What would I worry about the 10,000 when I have the Lord? Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. 
These are all past tense. You've struck my enemies, all of them, with the cheekbone, on the cheekbone, breaking the teeth of the ungodly. That's past tense. No, but no toothless enemy can hurt you. And you've rendered them harmless because salvation belongs to you and you bless your own. So David was running, and David had caused some of this, and there was a lot of things that he could have done better. But he wasn't about to let go of God in all of this. That's a pretty good lesson, isn't it? And in the morning, honestly, you know, how long could he have slept? They, they, they walked all day, all evening. He must have just been exhausted. But he woke up in the morning and said, God kept me, and God won't let me go. Psalm 3. And then in the evening, notice the evening psalm, David again writes of his experience. The day had passed, still no Absalom. The circumstances, by the way, were still very dire, but Absalom hadn't come with his armed forces to wipe David out. If you go back and read the historical setting of the battle or the coup, had Absalom just kept coming, David would have got wasted. I mean, aside from God stepping in to stopping him, you know, on a practical stand, he would have been annihilated. He didn't have an army. He had a bunch of fearful people. They, they were terrified. Joab was there with some guys, but he would have been outnumbered completely. As God would have it, David sent a good buddy of his back named Hushai. And Hushai was David's buddy and a faithful guy at that. But David had had another counselor for years, a guy named Ahithophel, who when it looked like Absalom was going to go for it, Ahithophel said, you know that David, he's really been a recluse. <laughs> I'm switching sides. And you might remember, and we'll read it later in the Psalms, that David said, you know, I was hurt by a friend, a guy that I worshipped with and I shared with and I looked to the Lord with. It was a friend's hand that turned against me. And it becomes the quote in the New Testament for Judas, this betrayal guy who, you know, had all that he could have had and yet chose to go elsewhere. So Ahithophel was with Absalom, and Ahithophel said to Absalom when they came into town and they found David gone and no need to fight, he said, let's go get him. And Hushai, David's friend, who David had left behind, went, no, let's not go get him. You know what's going to happen, Absalom? You got a head of steam and you got popular support. You go to get David, he's going to be like a caged animal. You think he's tough in your days gone by. Wait till you find him at his wit's end, you know, cornered with his family and his pride on the line. Man, you're not ready for that. And so he, through this rationale, was able to convince Absalom, yeah, you know, I should wait. Yeah, you should wait. Because if you go off half-cocked now after David, and he fights and he wins, you're going to lose all your popular support. And the people with you are going to leave you, and you're going to be dead, man. You're going to be in big trouble. So he talked him into waiting a few weeks. Let's gather the troops. Let's do this right. Where's David going to go? How's he going to survive? We can afford to wait. And the counsel of Hushai, a planted, if you will, counselor by David, had convinced him the best way of victory was to not go early, and it gave David some time. Does David know that by day two in the evening? Absolutely not. Every noise must have been everyone looking over their... No, that's not that. Is that? No, that's not that. It would have been a constant, fearful kind of looking, you know, over the fence, if you will, down over the valley, but they didn't come. So David is now 12 hours into his run, you know, before he goes to sleep, and he has to, again, express himself before the Lord. And he writes Psalm 4, David on the run, part 2, if you will. And he says in verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God, Elohim, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. How long? 
O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? And how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? I think that so often as Christians, we become very philosophical in our belief systems and not very practical. You know, we pray for things, and if the Lord doesn't come through, we just write it, oh, well, Lord, I didn't want that to happen. But we really don't care, you know? It's stuff that we risk, but there's not much risk in. And that's how most of our life is spent. We pray, and whatever happens, oh, whatever happens. But we don't have that real pressing desire to see God work. But there comes a time in, in our life, and it's usually, you know, when, when there's struggles, that, that prayer goes from philosophical to personal. I heard a story years ago. I thought it was very good, and I'll tell it to you. Maybe you'll like it, and maybe you won't, and then that'll be it for Storytown. But, but I read a story about two guys at the beach, and one was sitting in, on the sand reading a book, and the other guy was wading around in the water because he wasn't good at swimming, and then this current pulled this guy into this deep hole, and he began to thrash for his life, and, and he cried out with real conviction, help me, I can't swim, I can't swim. And the guy sitting on reading the book never even bothers to look up, but he says, neither can I, but you don't hear me making a big fuss about it. <laughs> and I think that's the perfect story between philosophical and personal. Doesn't matter if you can't swim if you're sitting on the sand. But when you're needing to swim and you're drowning, all of a sudden that makes a great <laughs> difference. Same thing in our prayer life. Same thing. You know, we can pray with just kind of take it or leave it, whatever God does. We really don't have any, we don't even take a side. And we call it faith. And boy, we're really pleasing the Lord. When in reality, all we're doing is we're just sloughing off the stuff we don't care about. But then it gets personal, you know. Now I'm out of a job and I can't pay the bills. Now my child is sick and they don't know what's wrong with him or her. And all of a sudden, I'm praying like my life depends on because it does. And here you find David crying out as well for mercy and for, for God's grace and asking God to hear his prayer but it's no longer philosophical, it's personal. And you see, when you have a sense of need, your prayers change. Notice what David says here, he says, hear me, have mercy on me, relieve me. It's pretty much personal, isn't it? And he prayed for deliverance and that that deliverance might silence the enemies of God who are still loving the lies of Absalom. And Absalom told quite a few lies. And he even said, God has called me to overthrow my father. And people, well, yeah, we think he did. Well, that's a lie. How long are you going to turn glory to shame and love worthlessness and seek lies? Selah. Think about it. Think about it. And then he says in verse 3, but know that the Lord, all capitals, Jehovah, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly, and the Lord will hear when I call to him. I love the picture of David's, you know, heart before God because he is sure that his life is committed to the Lord. The word set apart is, is the Greek word in, in the Greek, in the Septuagint, sanctified or, or to be set apart. And the Lord knows those who have been set apart for him and he hears their prayers. Here, here's an interesting insight into, into prayer. You know, if you commit yourself to the Lord, I think your prayer life does much better. When you're committed to the Lord, you do much better. You, you see what he's saying? I know that, that the Lord has set me apart for himself. So I know God's going to hear me. I, I, I like, uh, 
I like to talk to folks sometimes about the relationship with the Lord. I had a guy recently tell me that he wasn't sure that he wanted to be saved because he didn't think he could give up everything that he'd need to to really be pleasing to God. And I said, well, you're probably right. But, you know, here in the Bible it says that the Lord will set you apart. <laughs> and I found that to be true. You know, when I first got saved, I just wanted to get saved because my life was kind of mixed up, you know. I just wanted to have some clarity <laughs> and some peace. But I realized that as I walked with God, that God began to form my desires. You know, I worried about quit getting loaded. I did a lot of LSD when I was young. Maybe it doesn't show. Maybe it does. <laughs> Smoked a lot of pot. I grew up in that generation, you know, and I wasn't all there all the time, you know. And so I was sure that when I got saved, maybe I could get saved and still get loaded. That would be good. You know, I could do both. And I worried about, well, you know, you got to quit doing the drugs. And I went, oh, I don't know. I like those. I like doing the drugs. You, you just kind of check out for a while. But then I got saved and I didn't want to do it. And it was such a fascinating thing to me, you know, that the Lord takes away the desire. I found myself going to church during the week. My friends go, what are you doing? It's not Sunday, you know, no one died. What are you doing? Well, actually someone did die. That's where I'm going, you know. <laughs> died for me. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself, him who is God. God can set you apart. I think that's such a cool thing to know. You know, don't try to, you can't really change your life as much as you can just commit yourself to the Lord. And then you find yourself hating what you once loved and loving what you once hated. And God sure does these cool things, doesn't he? I mean, he works in your life. And then you go, look at the Lord's at work. Because <laughs> you start doing stuff that nobody would do unless the Lord was working. And coming to church more than once a week is certainly one of them. And then David said, be angry, but don't sin. And meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. The word angry here is a Hebrew word for trembling or quaking or standing in awe. David, in the midst of great pressure, not knowing who was coming to get him, wanting God to deliver him from Absalom's wicked plans, advised his own, his own heart that he could be angry, but he couldn't sin. And that he had to be still thinking about God and what God might do. I think that this has to be a, a pretty difficult time to stop talking and yelling and screaming and figuring things out. You know, you're on the run. You've you got thousands of people with you. They don't know what to do. They could just be sitting ducks to an angry man coming over the hillside. And David is only concerned that he stands still and that his only quaking is before the Lord. I imagine his knees would be knocking thinking about Absalom. Absalom was not a nice man. He was a wicked guy. But David didn't want to be afraid of him. He wanted to be afraid of God. He wanted to move in, in awe before the Lord. So keep your mouth shut in awe. Wow. And then, verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness while you put your trust in the Lord. <clears throat> you, you probably know that the Old Testament sacrifices basically fell into two kinds. There was offerings for sin which brought you back into relationship with God. And then everything else developed that relationship with God. Sweet-smelling sacrifices, if you will. And so you could get the burn offering or the meal offering or the peace offering, and they were all brought by folks who'd been first forgiven through that sin offering, and then they were fellowship offerings. You ate with the Lord, you spent time with the Lord there, you, you enjoyed what God did for you. They were acceptable any time, provided they were freely given, and from a pure heart. And those were basically the only requirements for ringing. Pure heart, willing a sacrifice. After you have, you know, had your sins forgiven 
or covered, if you will, through the sacrifices. So David says here, offer the sacrifices of the righteous. That would be have fellowship with God. Come and sit at God's feet. Enjoy. Here, listen to what God has to say. Just trust him. You might say to David, if you're with him, maybe we ought to make a plan, you know? And David would say, let's just pray for a while. No, dude, we're going to get killed. Let's make a plan. Set a watch. Get an army. Well, David would do all of those things in the, in the weeks that followed. He'd have a big enough army that by the time Absalom came, he was history. But first things first. And when you read these words, let's ha offer the sacrifices of the righteous. This isn't sin offering. This is fellowship offering. Let's enter into fellowship with God. And let's trust the Lord for our situation. Then he goes on and he says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? And I suspect, if you go back and read the account, <clears throat> that even though Absalom had an attack, there were an awful lot of people in the camp with David that were terrified. You know, the guys with him, the moms with their kids, they didn't have the kind of faith David had. And this is what they were saying. There are many who are saying, who will show us, notice, any good? Who's going to help us? Well, David had had years of God's blessing. But the people with him now had interpreted this as a falling out, that God was no longer with them. Every new trial, it seems, brings a challenge to faith, right? This was a big one. No matter what and how often you've stood with the Lord and been faithful, you know that the next time that comes, you're going to say, hey, Lord, where are you? We don't learn very well, do we? And the people with David hadn't had a chance much to learn those things. And so they were very concerned. David was able to look to his present with an eye towards the future because he had seen the God of the past. And even at night, he meditated as he wrote on the things of the Lord. And even in the morning, he just said, I'm going to pray and have some fellowship with God. This will be all right. He, he hears the prayers of those he set apart, and I'm one of them. But not the people. They didn't believe that yet. So they were in, in despair. Where are we going to turn for help? Who's going to help us now? That's really what the cry of verse 6 is at the first part. What army, what people, what, what group, what tribe? Who's going to stand with us? And David, realizing it that night, asked the Lord to make the light of his presence clear for the people that were there. There were a lot of people in David's camp that were gloomy <laughs> and bummed out as well as they should be. This had been the government, and now they thought the conspiracy was very strong. So David, there are many say, who will show us any good? But Lord... Lift up the light of your face, your countenance, your presence upon us. Shine so that the people can see you. Help them to believe and trust in you. And then he says in verse 7, because he seemed to be doing very good. You've put gladness in my heart more than in the season that the grain and the wine has increased. Now, I don't know about you, but if something's hunting, somebody's hunting to kill you, and you've got like 10,000 people to protect. And everybody goes, I've never been happier. What are you, nuts? Did you get hit in the head? You know, are you too old to think straight? <laughs> nope. The people need to see God's countenance, but David had already seen it. And if you look at what, you know, what David writes, it's quite a, a mouthful because the seasons of the grain and wine increase are the harvest times, you know, when people bring in the, the, you know, the wine or the grapes or they bring in the wheat and they are able to sell it and, and their, their income is such that this is when the money goes in the bank. This is when, you know, all the hard labor is cashed in. That's a pretty happy time for most people, payday, <laughs> when you're only getting paid once a year or twice a year. But David goes, I'm a lot happier than that just knowing you're taking care of me. 
that's quite a big growth. And he didn't see the, now we can read, you know, chapter 17 of 2 Samuel, you go, oh yeah, it all works out. And David didn't know that. David thought he was dust, history maybe, you know. But either way, God was going to be trusted and he was going to celebrate not the good fortune of the Lord in counting the gain of the filling of the barns, but the peace that comes when you trust God. Far more sure than money in the bank, isn't it? Far more sure than food in the fridge or reserves at the ready. This was a difficult time in David's life, especially made more difficult by the fact that he knew he'd let this thing go too long with his boy. He never had dealt with it. Back in Jerusalem, verse 8, David says, I will lie down in peace and sleep because you alone, Lord, can make me dwell safely. I don't know what's coming, but I know there's no one that can protect me. There's no sense knocking on somebody's door. You're going to have to be the one. If you go back and read the history, Absalom's forces back in Jerusalem were busy, you know, conscripting an army together. They had gotten some guys, but they needed, they felt a lot more. They thought in a few days or maybe a few weeks they could come and give them the knockout blow. And David, not knowing what was coming, just went to sleep. He had peace in the Lord. Good night, Lord. I think it was Spurgeon who said, you slumber sweetly if you are rocked to sleep by faith. And I think it was uh, Dwight Moody who used to go to the window and say, Lord, this is your problem. i got to get some sleep. And he just kind of left it with the Lord. You know, so did David. All the people going, who's going to help us? They're, oh, just go to sleep. <laughs> Lord, show them your face. They'll be all right. What a tremendous faith at a very difficult time. And then we come to the following morning. Oh, Lord, in the morning... You will hear my voice. I'll direct my prayers to you. I'll look up. I think we, like George said, we sang several of these tonight. The following morning is only 24 hours later from chapter 3. Only 48 hours since they had broke out of Jerusalem. So nothing has been resolved, mind you. Um, the outcome wasn't clear. If you go read 2 Samuel 18, eventually a battle does come. David had thousands of soldiers by the time they got to him. These soldiers that loved David would have given their lives for him. He was like their leader, their hero. He had taught many of them about God. They were David's mighty men who didn't break rank, who wouldn't run away, who had spent years seeing him come to be king. They were able to come from all over the countryside. It just took a little while. David's only order to the army was, don't kill my boy. Well, you know, not everyone has faith. And the general of his army, Joab, didn't want to hear that. And when Absalom got stuck in a tree, uh, he slit his throat. He ran him through. And David just wept. <laughs> he just wept. He said of Absalom, I wish it had been me that died instead of you. Because he knew that the future for Absalom was horrifying. When his little boy died in judgment from the Lord for that affair that he had with Bathsheba, he was able to say of the little boy, I know that you won't come back to me, but one day I'll go to be with you. The hope that he had for a little child that died who had no accountability was that he was to go with the Lord. And even though the judgment was that he went to be with the Lord or was taken from David and Bathsheba because of sin, David knew that the Lord would keep that little boy safe and that one day they'd be reunited. He didn't have that hope for the adult Absalom who just lived like hell, so to say, you know, he didn't live for the Lord. And so David knew that his end was the end, but the boy, not so, not so at all. 
So eventually David will go back and be restored. In fact, that Shemai guy that was yelling and screaming at David, when David comes back, he, he was up on the ridge, but he's doing this. I was just kidding. You know, I hope you can take a joke. You know, don't take it serious. Don't take it personal. And David let him live. But when David was about to die, he called his boy and he goes, yeah, I got a couple things you need to do after I die. Yeah, Kill that guy Shemai. <laughs> He's terrible. <laughs> and the Lord kind of dealt with him later. Um, but this is not then. This is just, you know, the following morning. Where David writes, Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation, and give heed to the voice of my cry, my King, my God. For to you will I pray, and my voice you'll hear in the morning, Lord. And in the morning I will direct it to you, and I'll look up. Notice the words that David uses in approaching God. He uses some very powerful words in Hebrew. The word give ear is the word for, you know, leaning forward and cupping your hand over your ear so you can hear better. Lord, <laughs> come here. Listen, or listen up. Give heed to the voice. Give heed to the voice. Which, interestingly enough, in Hebrew, if you're just going to take the words out of context, is the words for what a dog does when he hears stuff that you don't, how they prick up their ears. You go, what was that? Only the dog hears it. You know how you're always running out the hole? The dog's upset. I wonder if somebody's out there. Who, who knows? You know, the dog hears stuff. You never, I never get it. He's always freaking out about, there must be a whole other world that the dog knows about. That's all I can remember. It's all right. Whatever it is, you know. But that's the word that David uses here. Lord, lean forward, cup your hand over your ears, and hear a voice that only you can hear. That's pretty cool. Pay close attention, Lord. Listen, my King and my God. And notice in verse 2 the urgency of his prayer. He had a heavy burden. <laughs> he didn't really even know how to articulate it very well. The word for meditation uh, in verse 1 here, consider my meditation, is only found here and in Psalm 39, verse 3. And it's a word that means to whisper within. So these aren't words, David wasn't praying out loud. The Lord is showing you what David was thinking in his heart. You get a look at someone's prayer life from within. So Lord, listen to what I'm thinking or pondering in my heart, what I'm longing, this is the cry of my heart, and direct my prayer to you. I want to lay in order. The word direct means to organize. So um, I want to lay in order like wood for a sacrifice. I want to lay out for you what's bothering me. And I want to look up with expectancy to see what you're going to do. Notice, not just pray and leave, pray and watch and wait. In the morning, I'm going to direct my prayer to you and then I'm going to look up. Sometimes that's kind of dangerous because you pray and then you wonder where God is, and so you just kind of write, I don't want to look, I don't want to see it, you know. David didn't have any choice. Lord, you got to get us off the hook here. And he watched. Then we read in verse 4, For you are not a God who will take pleasure in wickedness. That certainly was Absalom and his friends' approach. The word is wickedness is lawless. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful can't stand in your sight. You hate workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. And the Lord abhors bloodthirsty, deceitful men. He was pretty sure that Absalom wasn't going to be able to succeed because everything about Absalom and the guys with him was that which God hated, which God would not honor, which God would not allow. If God was working to get rid of David, David could probably have understood that, <laughs> but not in that manner. And so he was assured 
that these guys would have short wings and a short flight and no footing. Notice verse 5, they have no place to stand. Though for a while, Absalom looked pretty powerful. But God hates that kind of stuff. He has no future. That was what David thought. And then he said of himself, but as for me, I'm going to come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, and I'm going to, in fear of you, worship towards your holy temple. So lead me, O Jehovah, in your righteousness because of my enemies and make your way straight before my face. Look, I know that you hate this, but you got to show me what to do. I want to come worship. And he looks towards Jerusalem to worship. Lead me back there. Make my way straight. When David left town, and again, you go back and read the historical account, the priests ran out to him with the Ark of the Covenant. Let's take the Lord's presence with us. And David went, nah, God chose to be in Jerusalem. That's where he put his name. I can't be hauling him out to the fields. I don't know where I'm going. But I do know this. If the Lord wants me to worship him, he'll bring me back here. And I'll be able to worship again here. And he'll open the door. So just take the ark back. Let the Lord be there, you know. And he sent it back with the words, God can bring me back here to worship him and see to it if I found favor in his sight. Now he prays the next morning. And it's been, you know, a whole day has passed. I know you hate the sin and that which is driving this coup. I know that I'm going to go and worship and depend on your mercy. But I need help. I need to walk uprightly because of the enemy. They're looking out. They're a way to destroy me. I want to know what's the right thing to do. He then returns, if you will, to the enemy, and he writes of them, there is no faithfulness in their mouth, and their inward part is destruction. Their throat is like an open tomb. And they flatter with their tongues. That's how this coup had gotten started. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. They have rebelled against you. Absalom, the deceiver, was going to be deceived. In fact, Hushai, his David's buddy, was able to talk him into waiting. The deceiver was deceived. And, and at least the way it's written in Hebrew, it's almost like a poetic justice, you know. You reap what you sow. The deceiver's been deceived. He reaps what he has sown. On the other hand, verse 11, let all of those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, Lord, will bless the righteous and will, with your favor, surround him as with a shield. What a great prayer. The word shield, by the way, here is not that little one you hold in your hand, but that big one, you know, that you put in the ground and hide behind when the arrows are coming. You know, that shield is, that's for swords, but the big one, the rumphea, you know, the, the one you stick in the ground, you just kind of hide over. Maybe you saw the Braveheart, you know, right there. That's what I'm talking about. You just get behind the thing so you don't get run through. The Lord will surround with a shield those who love his name who trust in him, who shout for joy because the Lord defends him. So David waits this thing out with tremendous faith, doesn't he? Though he can't see the answer. We can. We get to read ahead. We cheat. David had to live through this. But I think in so many of the Psalms, it is so helpful if you can get the context in which they are written, because then you can place yourself in the shoes of the prayer warrior or the man or the woman crying out. And, and certainly in the Psalms, you get a lot of that. And unfortunately, we get a lot of psalms that have descriptions of why they were written and to whom and, and when. So next week, um, chapters 6 through 10. So would you do me a favor? Read ahead.
study them on your own. And then we'll pick up the pace here. There's a lot of psalms, you know. Father, tonight as we sit together, our prayer would certainly be that we would learn from David that though we mess up so many things and create so much headaches for ourselves as we don't always obey, don't always follow the Lord, don't always say or do the right thing, and yet whenever we're ready to listen, you're ready to work. And here David outside of the city, an old man with certainly not the kind of strength or fighting power that he may have once had, found a greater strength than in his own sword, he found strength in you. And though the enemy, he said, had increased, though they were saying there's no help for him with God, David was able to say, Lord, you're a shield for me. You're the glory and the one who lifts up my head. And when I pray, you'll answer and I can go to sleep and not be afraid of 10,000 because you'll save me. Salvation belongs to you and broken teeth to those who would seek to defy you. So Lord, even as David, we cry tonight to relieve our distress. Have mercy upon us. Hear our prayer. And we know that you have set apart for yourself those who are godly, that you'll work in those who know you to make us the way you want us to be. But Lord, as we face sometimes things we don't understand, <laughs> sometimes of our own making, May our rest be with you. May our hope be in you. And may our comfort be found as we offer the sacrifices of the righteous. As we come to worship, we come to sing, we come to pray. We lift up our hands. God, you hate sin. And yet you love us. And as we would walk with you, Father, we can expect, I think, like David, great things to take place. So may we have that kind of faith tonight. And if you need prayer tonight, maybe you're going through just the worst of times. Maybe you don't even understand why. Well, look, know this. God doesn't just allow things for no reason. He's doing something good. Like David, may you find great rest in the morning directing your prayers to the Lord. Knowing God loves you. And there's faithfulness with him. And even reading towards the end of chapter 5 here tonight. Let all those who trust in you rejoice. Shout for joy. Because you surround them as a shield. The prayer room is open. Good place to go. Just pray. Have some time of prayer. The fellowship hall is open. You can get a cup of coffee and sit down with someone. And just say, hey, pray for me. May David's uh, response to his great dire circumstance encourage you this week to trust God because he's worthy to be trusted. And if you need to know Jesus tonight, if you need to know the Lord, you come over to the prayer when you just tell someone, hey, I just need to know more about what it means to walk with God. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.